Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You mentioned some privilege and things, you know, growing up in in middle-class America, I have privileges, no question, over people that are growing up in other countries that education struggles and things. I There's no question about it, but... I think everybody can probably expand their vision bigger than what they do right now, especially in the world that we live in today. And you, you alluded to this at the start, you know, anybody anywhere can start a podcast. And yeah, you did it 10 years before it was the booming crazy thing, but anybody can start a podcast. You can be in a village somewhere in India and you got a cell phone connection you can start a podcast and if you have good ideas and you've built your ability to speak and things, it may take a lot of work for you to find success, but you can find it because the barrier to entry is so small right now on achieving whatever dream you want to achieve. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Michael, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about uh, your work by way of somebody on your team. And uh, I think that what really struck me about the way that you have you know, made your way in the world as a creative person is you've somehow found that intersection between art and commerce that seems to be a mystery between uh, for, for so many aspiring artists. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, what in the world did your parents do for work? And how did that end up influencing and shaping the life uh, choices that you've made? Wow, that's an interesting question. And I've never been asked that. My mom was a school teacher. Uh, she was a stay-at-home mom when we were little kids. And then when I got into college, she started working again to put my my older brother and I through college. And then she just worked continually 
through that. Um, and my dad was a career 30 years at the same company, uh, orthopedic company in the Midwest and, uh, was in marketing and sales and things. Didn't talk about work very much. Work was a job. It wasn't a passion for him. He wasn't entrepreneurial. I think he had entrepreneurial spirit, but, but, you know, it was the era of you get a job at Bristol Myers and you work there for 30 or 40 years and then you retire. That was the era pre my, my era, the Gen X era of people. And, uh, there's entrepreneurship seemed to be in my blood, but it didn't come from my, my upbringing. No. So the, there are multiple questions that come to that. Your mother, as an educator, what was her view on um, both how you should get educated, but also like how that would influence your career choices? Because, you know, like I used to criticize my parents a lot for sort of their very practical career advice because they're, you know, that's just how Indians are. But then I think that one of the things that we tend to do, particularly in our generation, was we overlook context. Like you mentioned, you know, that was the era in which your parents were raised and often that's what determines their you know sort of choices because for yeah. my parents like their life trajectories were binary it's either poverty or security mm-hmm. and so their mm-hmm. advice made a hell of a lot of sense now you know after you know 20 years of actually being smart enough to reflect on what they've said yeah i think you know i i, I think my generation i'm 48 years old and i think my generation was the last american generation where you go to high school And the expectation for most graduating high schoolers was, okay, next step, you go to college and you get a degree in something that you choose and then you go get a job and then you work there for 30 or 40 years. I think that was the the unsaid expectation that my parents raised me in. And I think that's the way that a lot of middle class America uh, culture was back then. And Mm -hmm. what I've seen over the span of my career is that that's completely changed that the um the acceptance of going on your life journey especially with the millennial generation uh really started you you graduate from high school which is still the expectation and should be but then people are going and traveling the world and they're documenting their life on social media and they're being entrepreneurial and the expectation to go to college for a formal education is a lot less. There's, there's ways to self-educate now that didn't exist when I was yeah. going to college in 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the environment's changed, but, but my parents as, and my mom as an educator, my dad who put himself through college, uh, their expectation was, okay, you go to college and you get a job. And I just, and they never said it. It just was, was there. And it seemed logical and what was expected of me, even though they never said it. Now, what they did well was they encouraged me to pursue something that I loved for a living. And I went to Indiana University in my freshman year. I was flunking out of college like half the students at any Big Ten school. Yo, you're screwing around and you have all this freedom that you never had and you're making stupid choices. And my grades reflected that. And uh, that end of my freshman year, when I was on academic probation, uh, my parents got me a book, Do What You Love, The Money Will Follow. Mm -hmm. And their encouragement was, hey, stop 
planning to go into business or something, just choose a career you're going to love. And I'd always loved art, always teacher's pet in my high school art classes, took every single one of them, grew up, you know, collecting comics and drawing and all the creative stuff. And so I thought, okay, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to be a commercial artist or a graphic designer, as we call them now. And I'll, I'll just do that for my career. And if I max out making 60 grand a year someday, maybe as some creative director, then that's what I'll make. And I'll just enjoy having a job I love. Mm-hmm. Well, lo and behold, I graduate from college and a year and a half later, I'm making 60 grand. And a year after that, I'm a creative director. And a year after that, I'm a creative director at Fox Studios. And my my actual expectation of what I could accomplish in a career as a creative was so small compared to what actually was possible. Yeah. I just didn't have a vision for it. And, and my parents, you know, they didn't help me gain a vision for that. Cause I don't know if they had a vision for it. I think they're probably as surprised as I am that I've had the, the success in my career that I've had. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. So I, I want to spend a bit more time on this do what you love and the money will follow narrative because... I think that there, it's so much more subtle and nuanced than that, right? Um, it kind of takes us back to context, um, privilege, you know, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I've been in a very fortunate position to be able to take that advice, follow it, and, yeah. you know, get to do this. I mean, but I started when I was 30. But I, I feel like we perpetuate that narrative without considering the context, and we sell it to people. Like, we sell false hope to people mm. almost to a fault. Um, and you, I think, you know, have built, you know, successful creative career, but I just had William Dershowitz here who wrote a book called the death of the artist. He had another book called the miseducation of the American elite. It was a really fascinating conversation about the, the harsh truths about what it takes to actually make a living as a creative person. And he said, you know, the probability of success is actually not high. And he said that he was very he was hypercritical of people like Steven Johnson who said there's no better time to start making money off your ideas because you have the internet, you have, you know, social media. I mean, you and I are, are pretty close in age. Like I remember when I went to college, it would take hundreds of, you know, hours and thousands of dollars just to build a website. Now you can do it in yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah. But the thing that has happened is that as you create more tools and you give more people access and you give them more permission and and you know what you know Naval Ravikant calls permissionless assets, you also fragment the media landscape. Um, you know, the producers of Oprah even said there will never be another Oprah because it's simply not possible within the context of today's landscape. Mm. And so with that in mind, like, where do you think, what are the nuances? I mean, you've obviously, like I said, found that intersection. Like what nuances do we miss when we perpetuate this narrative? Well, that's a really, really interesting talking point. So, um, I, th- I guess the question to rephrase it, why are, are we perpetuating a lie to people saying, okay, just be creative and you'll be, or, you know, if you love, if you're an artist and you can love it and you're passionate about it, you can find success. And, and you're saying that the likelihood of that is small based well, on some of these other interviews. True, right. I mean, there are plenty of people because again, you know, there are so many other things that play a role. You know, if your talent obviously plays a role that matters, we can't. Yeah deny that um background plays a role like if you happen to have grown up in privileged circumstances you know you're what malcolm gladwell would call an outlier like you have a huge edge you know i'll give you an example i have always been reluctant to teach a podcasting course because there were so many sort of outlier advantages like we started 10 years before this thing becomes a cultural megatrend i had this mentor i found on twitter who for no reason whatsoever took me under his wing like those are things i can't recreate for another person Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm Yeah. I mean, okay. Well, so talk about a couple of my outlier experiences that led to my success. Well, I got my job as a creative director at Fox studios off of applying to a monster.com ad. 
And you're not going to get that job applying off of Indeed now. Yeah. Um, Unless you're already a creative director at Warner Brothers, then yeah, maybe. But I wasn't. I I was part of a dot-com startup in Phoenix that was kid-centric. It was called okid.com. And I was the creative director of that, this little VC-funded startup-y thing. And it drew attention to my resume from Fox Kids during the dot-com boom, where people were throwing stupid money at bad (laughs) ideas. Yeah, I know. And, I went to Berkeley during that time, so I yeah, remember. Yeah, so so you remember it well. And it all blew up a couple of years later, but that's the outlier anomaly for me in my career that I can't recreate those scenarios today mm-hmm. because they don't exist that way anymore. No. Um, so, you know, there's, there's I guess, uh, circumstantial timing. Uh, f- it's fortuitous. It's uh, you know, we're blessed or grateful or whatever. I don't, I don't know how you phrase it or it's the, the universe fills my bucket or whatever kind of metaphor we want to use for it. But here's the thing that I believe, and I'm an, I'm an optimistic person. I believe that the future is going to be a lot greater than my past. And I believe that tomorrow has potential to be even better today than today. And that's the way that I've lived. And I do believe that if people stay in the game long enough, that eventually they're going to get these opportunities that come their way where the the stars align just right for their magic moment to happen when they can turn whatever their passion is into a great, successful career. I think the problem for a lot of people is that when the stars align, they're either not looking for it or they're not prepared to take advantage of it. And they never find that successful moment, that, that outlier thing, because they're not ready for it. And and the stars lined just perfect last night, but they were in bed when it Mm -hmm. happened. And so they didn't catch it. I think that there's a lot of that in people's careers. And especially now, not to stereotype uh, the, the younger workforce of today, but, the if you're an ambitious entrepreneurial driven millennial the world is your oyster man because so many of them are not if you're mm-hmm. ambitious and driven right now you can really accomplish some amazing things because so many people you mentioned entitlement or or privilege so many people don't put in the effort that it takes to yield the success that they really want yeah well so you're a parent right yeah Okay. So how has your own life experience, um, you know, influenced your own experience as a parent? Cause I know that, uh, you spent some time living in Columbia post mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. graduate school, like all those experiences, you know, like I'm very convinced at this point that every experience, whether we realize it or not plants a seed that connects those dots later as, you know, Steve Jobs said, but the thing is you have to collect those dots to connect them. And, you know, I think that in our, you know, sort of previous linear, you know, achievement oriented trajectory, there's no space for exploration in that. It was very much like, this is the path. This is, you know, where you're going to go. And that's why I always said, like, the best that'll do is get you to a destination that somebody else has already arrived at, um, which kind of defeats the purpose. But as a parent, based on your own experience, how's that influenced how you're advising your kids about, you know, this whole narrative of do what you love? 
you know, I, I raised my kids a lot differently than the way that I was raised. Uh, being an entrepreneur. So my older boys, I have two older boys. One is 22 and the other one is 19 in a few weeks. And then I have a little buddy, nine year old who is still at home with me and my wife. My two older boys are in college and, and, uh, proceeding in their futures. Now, my oldest is planning to study video. He's in his sophomore year of college and he wants to be, to do something with video and movies and filmmaking and things again, creative. And then the next one is a graphic designer. He, that's what he wants to do. And he's studying digital media. And so I look at these two boys and I, and I'm not surprised that they both are choosing creative careers because they have seen how I've made that a successful life for myself. Something that I worked really hard during my kids' upbringing was to help them understand the possibility of their future and help them understand and see money differently than how I was raised. Like I said, when I was graduating from college, I asked my, or uh, when I was graduating from college, I thought to myself, okay, well, at least I do something I love and the money will follow. But at some point I'll be making 60 grand a year and I don't swear I'll max out and that's how I'll live. And that's fine. That's what I thought. My money blueprint was so small compared to what reality was. Nobody expanded that for me. Well, I raised my children with a much bigger money blueprint. They, the way that they perceive money, because they knew when I owned my agency, I would talk about landing the half a million dollar project or that my overhead was $170,000 a month. Um, I would have them work in college. Uh, I owned a commercial or in high school, I owned a commercial property and I would have them work for my work for me to go and collect the rent check and things. So they would go and, and pick up the $8,000 rent check from our renter and go and deposit it in the bank. And I, so even at a young age, you know, they're 15 years old and they're funneling money that's much bigger than the way that I was raised in the perception of money. And, and I intentionally did this for them to help them perceive possibility. If my kids aren't making more money than I made, I'll feel like I failed in my raising of them. And I think that there's, you know, from a perpetual social standpoint, that's what most of us want. We want our kids to be more successful than we are. You want your kids to start a podcast or to just fulfill, to live their creative life and have it fulfill them in some way and to accomplish something great that they can be proud of. You want that for your children. And, and I, and I always envisioned that all the way from the start, it was never uh, talking about how are we going to make ends meet for tomorrow on our, you know, salary. It was all more entrepreneurial conversation. Yeah. So you've brought up, you know, four sort of words that I think really will form a framework for the rest of our conversation, uh, which is is kind of, I think my mind just makes mental models up as I listen yeah, to people it's good, talk. Perfect. But, <laughs> I love it. Um, well, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, sort of expectations, vision, vision, possibility, and the money blueprint. So I want to basically do this in those order. Yeah, uh, in that order. But, you know, the thing is, expectations are such an interesting double-edged sword, right? Ray Ramon, who's like, 
arguably the most successful composer in the world at this point, you know, um, who does all the Bollywood movies and, and is really, really um, just this brilliant musician. In my mind, the definition of unmistakable, like I don't understand the words of any of his music and I love it and I recognize yeah. it instantly. And the thing that he said, he has a documentary called Harmony on Amazon, where he goes around India and he meets different kinds of musicians. Um, and, you know, it's funny because he grew up, you know, having lost his dad, he and he started his career literally just making ad jingles at an ad agency, like not kind of what you would think would be, OK, this guy's going to be the next Bollywood superstar. Yeah. But he said something that has always stayed with me when it comes to expectations. And he said, when you expect nothing, you get everything um, or everything comes to you now. The thing is, we now, you know, live in a world where you can go from idea to execution faster than any other time in history. Yeah. But I think that that also creates the expectation that people will be successful just as quickly. And you have kind of seen this, you know, over multiple decades. So mm -hmm. how do we, you know, how do we have this balancing act of, you know, having like ambitious goals? I guess really where, where, where it is, is you know, how do you find this balance or, or this coexistence of both uh, fulfillment and ambition? Yeah, that's interesting because it did, you know, it, it takes time. Um, and the, the, the lack of patience in the upcoming workforce is smaller than ever. Uh, if they're not, you know, a lot of these millennial generation, and I don't want to be bashing on millennials because I think that there's some really interesting things happening socially in the workplace because of millennials and this mindset. But if they're not successful by their standard, you know, six figure income a year or two out of school, then they feel like they're failing compared to their buddy who is starting their own VC fund or whatever, you know, it's just this, it's weird at this weird time in business. And um, I, Gary V does a great job of, of telling people to be patient and, you know, you, you see him ripping on somebody in his Gary V style where he's like, oh, so how long have you been doing this? Oh, I've been doing it for six months and it hasn't been successful. He's like, try doing it for six years, then come yeah. back and talk to me, you know, and that you gotta, you gotta work and you gotta hustle for this for years and years of time. And the drive I had at the start of my career was massive. I, gra I graduated from college thinking, okay, now I'm going to go get a job at some agency. My first job was at Alpha Graphics, man, as a freaking copy dude. And it, so I feel like I started at the very, very bottom and it motivated me so much to realize oh, I, I, I've not learned everything I need to learn to be successful. I've got to go deep on this. And I went into an exhausting uh, effort of self-education over the next five to 10 years that yielded me, ended up starting my agency and things and, and running through companies and getting promotions and things. But it all came out of this drive to self-educate. And, and, and then my agency years, I mean, the first few years, so I went, I went from billing, I billed 220 grand or something my first year couple of years later, I'm billing a half million. A year after that, I'm billing a million. It was just compounding on top of itself. Uh, but I didn't feel like I had substantial net worth until a decade into it. And this mm -hmm. is a decade of billing a million plus a year. And yeah. then finally, I look at the bank accounts, my own bank accounts, and I'm like, wow, I got, I got money in here now. But it wasn't like the first year that you bill a million dollars and you have 
$600,000 of cost. And then you, then you, uh, get taxed down to $200,000 of profit. And then you spend a hundred grand on keeping your family alive and paying your bills and things. And all of a sudden you got a hundred thousand dollars left after billing a million dollars. It takes, it still takes time to compound that to where all of a sudden you have what people consider success. And I didn't understand that dynamic when I first started. Yeah. Let's talk about vision because I think that, you know, when I we think about vision, like to me, vision is also one of those things that emerges by doing the work, right? Like we, you know, we weren't even called the unmistakable creative 10 years ago. <laughs> Excuse me. That's, that was a natural byproduct of, you know, constantly putting out work and creating it and kind of, you know, looking for threads. But when you think about the vision for your life then versus now and and how it's evolved and, you know, even when you work with people, like what is the process for somebody to like, you know, come up with a vision for their life? Because so often I feel like our vision, our, our goals are often based on external parameters or other people's expectations. It's like this, you know, I want to be on the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And we set, you know, outcome oriented goals, which are largely out of our control and inevitably we become disappointed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my, I, I always struggled uh, with a couple aspects of vision. The first one is that my early vision was so small based on reality. And I think that the, most people probably have that as their primary problem. They think that climbing Mount Everest is not possible, so they never dream about it. They never, They never feel ambitious enough to go and even make that a goal. Who am I to make such a big goal? I want to build an agency with 20 employees. Who am I to build such a big goal, to have such a big vision? I think that's so detrimental. Again, coming from an optimistic person standpoint, it's so detrimental to the capability that most humans have. And you mentioned some privilege and things, you know, growing up in, in middle-class America, I have privileges, no question, over people that are growing up in other countries that education struggles and things. I There's no question about it. Uh, but I think everybody can probably expand their vision bigger than what they do right now, especially in the world that we live in today. And you you alluded to this at the start, you know. Anybody anywhere can start a podcast. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you did it 10 years before it was the booming crazy thing, but anybody can start a podcast. You can be in a village somewhere in India and you got a cell phone connection. You can start a podcast. And if you have good ideas and uh, you've built your ability to speak and things, it may take a lot of work for you to find success, but you can find it because the the barrier to entry is so small right now on achieving whatever dream you want to achieve. You go back 15, 20 years before the era of podcasts and you want to start a radio show. Well, that's not a dream that anybody can have because you got to have money and you got to rent a studio and you got to... Um, get investors and whatever might have to happen to start your radio show. Now, somebody can decide this morning to start a radio show and this afternoon have their first episode live. It's really the, the barrier to entry is so small. So I think for people listening to this, 
expand your vision because so much is is capable right now in 2020 and beyond compared to where things were before. You mentioned it too. I mean, it was starting a website. You want to start up some some website? Yes, there's a lot of competition for website eyeballs. But you can decide this morning to start your website and have it live this afternoon. Mm-hmm. There's no barrier to entry on your ideas. So expand your vision and go after something. Yeah. Well, in the interest of being very selfish and asking for a tactical example, let's say that somebody comes to you as a coaching client and me. If you were to sit down with me and go through this process of vision, where would you guide me from based on where I'm at today? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, and I've done this a bunch of times with people. So the I take them through a couple exercises. The first one is I love Tim Ferriss. And in the four-hour work week, he has his dreamlining uh, exercise, which is a, a fancy way of goal setting. And he does this based on three things. What do you want to be? What do you want to do? And what do you want to have? And when I take people through this, it really helps you organize your life mentally on what you want to achieve. So what do you want to be? Uh, what do you want to be? You want to be a top 10 podcast on Apple. You want to sure. be a great podcast host. You want to interview some of the greatest people in the world. You want to be known as a great public speaker. You want to be something. What do you want mm-hmm. to do? Well, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and I want to swim in a great white shark cage and I want to go and scuba dive the Great Barrier Reef and you know, things you want to do. And then what do you want to have? Well, I want to own a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or whatever. I mean, people, people have things that they want to have in, in this world. And when you organize your goals that way, it starts to help you form the vision of what you want your life to be. And then I take my coaching students through the mindset of, okay, these are the things you want to be, do, and have. Now, how do we create a business that can help you achieve those things. Uh What is the business that will fund these opportunities for you? Now, for me, a lot of what I want to be and do is my business. I want to be known as one of the world's greatest, most accessible creative mentors. That's what I want to be. I want to be known as that. And so what does that make me do? It makes me share all kinds of content and it makes me have cost-effective coaching pricing. It makes me release courses that I know are going to benefit people. It makes me do a lot of things that are feeding into what I want to be or what I want to be known as. And I think yeah. taking it, breaking our goals down into those three things helps us with our vision. And then another thing I think is so powerful is just vision boarding. Mm-hmm. You know, go on, go on to Pinterest. So get your be, do, have list. <laughs> Yeah. And then open up a Pinterest board that is B and open up a Pinterest board that is do and one that is have and start pinning things that visually represent those three categories. And mm. that whole experience is so powerful, especially, you know, creatives listen to this podcast to us as visual creative people. When we start to see it in these three buckets and all of a sudden those images get imprinted on our mind and our subconscious. And then as we go and wander around in our business dealings, 
we're subconsciously working to fulfill these three objectives that we have in our life. And I had so much power in that. I mean, I, I created a board of what I wanted my agency studio space to look like. And seven years later, I owned a studio space that I paid and built out from a shell and it had the glass walls and the chalkboard wall and the dry erase board room and exposed beams and all the stuff that you could look at my vision board of my studio and see the 40 photos in it from other agencies everywhere. And you'd walk around my agency and you'd be like, well, I see exactly where this came from, but it was seven years in the making. And it all stemmed from something I wanted to have a cool studio and it, mm. and it was fulfilled and the decisions that I made mostly subconsciously over that seven year span that eventually yielded the result of that vision. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because, you know, it, I think it makes me think a lot about just environment. I, you know, we'd probably share the story before on the show, but, um, you know, where I remember telling my friends, I was like, oh, if I had a million dollar recording studio, I have frame prints of the people I interviewed on the wall. She's like, honey, you don't need a million dollar recording studio for that. You need some framed uh, you know, Ikea frames and, you know, printing machines. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I did that. And it's kind of amazing because that literally is, you know, on the wall behind me. And then, you know, I was talking to Ben Hardy recently. He said, okay, so let's say we were to design the environment of the future. I said, you know, I would replace the album covers of the wall, not with people I have interviewed with people I want to interview. Uh, yeah. So good. So powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about sort of possibility. And I, I think I want to frame it in sort of a very practical context. So you have worked with some of the most iconic brands to make, you know, creative ideas happen. What does the process for something like that look like? And how does that contrast to sort of the individual creator you see struggling um, to sort of make, get any traction with their work. Um, you're talking about the creative process for big brand stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's similar, like how does it work? Yeah. It, it's, it's not different. It's just that the brand is cooler. And, and I thought <laughs> this when, when I, when I st- when I got my job at Fox Studios, so they got, I got hired as a creative director. I was 28 years old and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this is going to be Great. I'm going to be working with the greatest designers in all the world. I'm moving to LA. I'm working in Century City and um, in the Fox studio lot. Um, I had an office in the freaking Nakatomi Plaza from Die Hard. And I'm like, this is great. And, and I'm going to be the boss of all these designers and stuff. And how am I ever going to accomplish this? And then I get in there and I, and I, quickly found out that all these designers were just as good as the designers I was working at at the last company and on unknown brands. And they're still talented. They're still good, but it wasn't anything overly special, but the assets we had to work with were amazing. And the exposure to the work was millions of people instead of thousands of people, if you're lucky with smaller brands. Yeah. But the process is is largely the same. Um, you know, you're still you're still ideating, you're still mood boarding, you're still understanding your target audience and target target viewer, target user, and you're executing on the goals that the that the client has. That process is is largely the same as what you do for any smaller brand. And and I think you know, going back to something that we're talking about on vision. So don't, don't, if you're not working with these great brands, don't make it feel like you're an inferior designer. 
You just mm-hmm. haven't gotten your foot in the door yet for that great brand. But the way that you work, if you follow a standard, structured, creative process, the way that you work is is going to translate to those bigger brands once you get that opportunity, yeah. if you can make that happen. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we did a, a, you know, animated series for a bigger brand, you know, on Soul Pancake, where we, you know, got the most poetic sound bites from, you know, Unmistakable and brought them to mm-hmm. life visually. 
Um, and it was it was interesting to see how that process works. Um, very much the same. It's like, oh, we're pretty much leading the project. But that raises the question of, OK, so you have an idea, you're able to execute it. How do you you know, create that intersection, you know, between art and commerce, basically commercializing the idea? And what role does the money blueprint play in all of that? Commercializing the idea. Uh, rephrase that for me in a well, different guess- way. Let's say I have an idea, you know, I'm able to execute it. How do I make that idea commercially successful, i.e. make money from it? And what role does the money blueprint play in all of that? And how do you change the money blueprint if it's one that doesn't serve you? Okay, so you got a handful of questions in there. So how do you, um, I mean, it it all comes down to understanding a, a pain point that your target customer has and filling it. And what the value of that pain point is. So you're trying to create something that will solve someone's pain and they are willing to spend X amount of dollars to solve that pain. Uh, that's, that's the same whether you're doing a building a product for some podunk town company in Oklahoma somewhere versus doing a project for a Google it's the same. And, and I think that creative process is, is the same. Uh, the money blueprint, you know, we could go a couple different ways on, on talking about that as it relates to this. I mean, these, these bigger companies have bigger money blueprint. They perceive dollars as numbers. It's a numbers game. And as long as their budget dollar says that this project is $40,000 in their budget. And if you're under $40,000, then their numbers work. And they don't view it as dollars as much as they view it as numbers. And so there's, as you get this escalation of the price that you can charge to a lot of these bigger companies because they're just balancing their budget numbers, not so much thinking that this is, uh, money out of their pocket. And when you work with some of these smaller companies, their money blueprint is largely structured on them thinking that money is money and money isn't a number. It's and any money they spend is money out of their pocket and not just a balancing of their budget budget number versus their budget number versus their expense number. No. Well, it's funny when I think about money, the there's one nugget that has always stayed with me from the people I've interviewed. And it was from Samantha Bennett. And she said, you know, you're always getting paid and you're always getting paid in the currency that you're asking for. So she's like, if you're asking for Facebook likes, that's what you're going to get paid in. And she said, if you ask for money, that's what you'll get paid in. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and it's funny because I think that, you know, for a lot of creative people, it's almost like they feel like they're doing something wrong by asking to be paid for their work. Yeah. Uh, there, you know, wrestling with that. I mean, it's something I had to get over. It took me a long time to say, okay, you know what? Yeah, we're running a business, not a charity. We need to be okay with this. Yeah. I, th- I think I, I had a post a couple, um, maybe a week ago or so. And it was, I, over the course of my agency life, I built $30 million over a 15 year span. And I shared some of the, the pain projects, you know, I, in this post. And it was like, I have one client that I wrote them a $54,000 check. And when I fired them and said, we can't work together anymore, here's a check of some of your money back. 
Um, I had another client, I waived $70,000 of their invoices. When I fired that client, I said, don't pay us the 70 grand you owe us, take your stuff and move on. And I shared some of these painful moments that I had. And I had somebody who commented on that post and said, oh my gosh, this is, these numbers are so huge. How, I don't know if I could bear that. And the truth is, is that it all just incrementally grows over time. And you look at your own money blueprint. And when you were, you know, in high school, a thousand dollars would have been a lot of money. And if you would have lost a thousand dollars on something, you would have been like, oh my gosh, how this is, I, I can't even bear the, this trauma of this. Well, then you get into college, you graduate from college. And, um, you know, to give an example, I bought some stocks at the, in my first era of buying stocks during the dot bomb in the early 2000s. And I had a couple companies that I bought WorldCom. I put $2,000 into WorldCom and it defunded and it was all gone. And $2,000 poof vanished. And that back then it was like, oh, this hurts so bad. Well, fast forward from there, 15 years of agency life, and I'm writing a check to the IRS for $120,000 at the end of the year for a tax hit. And you're like, oh, well, that's my tax number. And, and you send it in an envelope and stick it in your mailbox. I literally did that. I had, I paid like 250 grand in taxes. I had prepaid in my quarterlies a batch, but then I paid another 120 in one check, handwritten, put it in an envelope and stuck it in my mailbox to send it to the IRS. And it doesn't come overnight, I think is the the point I'm making. I think it it's just this incremental when you when you first start, a thousand dollars feels like a lot, and then ten thousand dollars feels like a lot, and a thousand doesn't feel like much. And then a hundred thousand feels like a lot, and ten thousand doesn't feel like much. And we reprogram our perception of money over time based on the way that our career is going. And it behooves anyone to start reprogramming their money blueprint as soon as they can. I, I take some of my coaching students through this when they start telling me what they're charging and they'll tell me, oh, well, I'm, I'm struggling to charge $700 for a logo and then I start telling them what my agency was charging for logos. We were charging like $6,500 for a logo. Same exact process that this person was afraid to charge $750 for. My agency, mm. my agency's charging $6,500. Then we start talking about Michael Beirut and doing a rebrand where they're charging a million dollars for the same work that I'm doing for $7,500 or $6,500. Yeah. And, um, and it's all about reprogramming our money blueprint to perceive what reality can be for us as creatives. And, and it's usually much, much bigger than what most of us think. And you've probably seen that in your career. When you start, oh, yeah. you're afraid to, sh afraid to charge this and you up it a little bit. And now you get comfortable with that. And then you up it a little bit. I never would have guessed uh, three years into my agency when I was doing $30,000 projects that uh, I'd have a $500,000 project, which we did for Kraft Foods. It was just a massive project. And we had multiple $300,000 projects. I couldn't even fathom that when I thought that 30 grand was a huge project. So we got to yeah. reprogram the way that we think about money. And, and I think learning about other people's businesses can help 
learn reading entrepreneur uh, biographies can help listening to podcasts like this can help uh, and and seeing the reality of what other people are charging and doing for the same type of work that you're doing can make a huge impact on your ability to succeed as a creative. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen people where they'll look at this like, oh, wow, this person is doing worse work than I'm doing and they're charging more. Yeah. I, like, you know, I remember the first, you know, I think first couple of years I did public speaking, I was like, oh, a couple hundred dollars sounds like a lot. And yeah. then you get like a pretty massive payday, like a, you know, like five figure payday for a 30 yeah. minute speech. And you're like, okay, that's what's possible. Yeah. And I got to a certain point where somebody was like, oh, we'll pay you 600 bucks to come to Texas and do a speech. And I was like, yeah, no, thanks. I could do that for, from an hour phone call now. Yeah. I yeah. And even getting to that point took me a while to say, oh, my time is worth this much. Yes. Yeah. It's a struggle. I have that struggle now. I mean, I, I struggle to charge what I should be charging for services that I offer now and for courses that I have. And um, my struggle comes from the fact that I don't need to do it for the money. I mm. love to help others. And so I don't want to price out an audience that needs my help. I can but, relate. <laughs> yeah. But my, and, and that's why you're doing a podcast. I mean, what do you, what do you make off of this podcast? Nothing. You make feel goods for yourself. That's what you get paid in. And, and you get to meet amazing people and build these great connections. But from a financial standpoint, unless unless you have great advertisers, you, most people aren't making any money. It's not financially lucrative to do a podcast, but why do you do it every week? Because you want to give back to the industry and you want to build awareness of your personal brand. And, and it does turn into speaking gigs and things and other opportunities, but the podcast itself is largely a donation for most people doing podcasts. So yeah. uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we've been fortunate enough to have, you know, advertisers and investors and all those things. Yeah, that, that's awesome. You know, I never thought in a million years we're, we're going to be possible. I can never imagine myself raising investor money or any of those things. It goes back to that whole idea of vision. Yeah. Um, one thing I wonder, and, and this is something I'm, I always ask people who, you know, coach a lot of people or work with a lot of people, uh, you know, and I asked Ramiz Sethi this and his answer was interesting. He said, it's just human nature. What do you find differentiates the people that do something and make something happen with your work and your coaching and your, your courses versus the ones who don't, because I feel like you kind of get, you know, uh, just this, you know, this trifecta of people where it's like the person who goes out and takes action and they would have done that, whether they'd taken yeah. your course or not, then there's the person that you become the catalyst for. And then there's a person who just keeps looking for the next thing. Yeah, man, it's, it's heartbreaking. I'll tell you when I, and I have a bunch of people that I've worked with for over a year, I started doing coaching last mm -hmm. summer and um, and I, you know, some of these first people that I coached, I still work with on a regular basis and, um, and you see them take action and you see it transform their business. And then you sit there and, and when you get on the call with that person again, and they haven't fulfilled their efforts to try and do some, change some of their sales strategies and things. And you're like, man, I just, I gave you the freaking goose that lays the golden egg. I gave it to you on a platter. All you have to do is take the 10 steps of action that I said, and you will see results, no doubt about it. And, um, and when people don't take action, uh, it's really kind of heartbreaking as a, as a mentor to anyone uh, when they don't do that. And that's what I said. I kind of alluded to this at the start. If you're, a, if you're an ambitious millennial, 
the world is your oyster, man, because anything is possible because so many people are unwilling to, to take action. They're unwilling to put in the work that it's going to take to be successful. They're, they're unwilling to do it. They're just content to turn on Netflix at the end of the day, instead of spending two hours self-educating, which could turn into massive value in their future. Um, and, I had to, you know, Tom and I on our, we do the BizBuds podcast and and we had a conversation about this. Like, what's the difference? How do you unlock this ambition? How do you unlock it in people and make somebody want to do it, to put in the work for it? And the, the harsh reality is, is that a lot of people don't. A lot mm-hmm. of people just, they want to go to their day job. They want to come home and they want to have, you know, some downtime with their kids and and get their paycheck and pay their bills and get up the next day and go to work and then come home and coach their kids soccer team and and when I'm when I'm an ambitious person I sit there and think oh but there's so much more in life you can achieve so much but then I have to tell myself you know what there's nothing wrong with that either that that's mm-hmm. a definition of success and more power to all those people that that's what they want they just shouldn't compare themselves to a Steve Jobs or a Gary Vee or a whoever, Elon Musk. You can't compare if you're not willing to put in the same effort, make the same sacrifices that some of those people did. Yeah. And you don't get to compare your life to theirs. And I think that that's where a lot of people go wrong. They They start to feel discouraged that they wake up and they're 45 years old and they don't have their own VC fund like their friends, they just are still working their job that they've had for 20 years. Well, don't make the comparison. Enjoy your life. Make it be what you want it to be for you. And then don't feel bad. And most of those people probably aren't listening to this podcast because a lot of those people, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of those people don't listen to podcasts because they're not, they're not in it in that self-improvement mindset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I think it brings us back to that whole sort of finding the balance between, you know, uh, fulfillment and ambition at the same time, you know, because I think that, you know, there's a sort of uh, diminishing return to ambition when it becomes so defining that, like, you know, we let it um, make us unhappy in every other area of our lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I lived uh, in unhappiness for a lot of years in my agency uh, run. You know, I was billing tons of money, winning tons of awards, and the outside perspective was, wow, Mike's killing it. And uh, the inside was, I was like killing myself. I, mm-hmm. I was working so hard and and caring so much about it that the stress load that I was putting upon myself was so high. And my drive and ambition was so heavy that you know, I was never satisfied. All of a sudden I've got 20 employees in a cool studio space and I'm not satisfied. Even Mm -hmm. though I told myself when I had five employees that I would be satisfied then. And then you get there and all of a sudden you're like, oh, but there's more. Now I can go to the next mountain high. And, uh, and that's, it's, it can be a really miserable way to live. And I focus a lot more now on enjoying that every day, enjoying every coaching call, enjoying the fact that I don't have 20 employees and massive overhead that I'm trying to churn and cover. I, 
I love my life and I focus on enjoying walking up the path as I climb the mountain rather than running up the path, staring at the top of the mountain, uh, thinking, oh, it's going to be so great when I put my flag in the top up there. I, I, I try and smell the flowers a lot more than I did in the most of the run of my career. Amazing. Well, this has been really, really great and uh, eye-opening and insightful. Uh, so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, man, that's uh, the unmistakable creative. What do I think makes somebody unmistakable? I think it's it's being truly authentic to who you really are. And, and you know, that's the, the greatest personal branding tip is to be you because there's nobody else like you anywhere else in the world. And nobody's going to have your exact same journey. Nobody has your exact same perception of the world, your exact same quirky sense of humor or your exact same heart and the way that you care about people. Nobody has it exactly the same as you. So be, be yourself. And, uh, I think that'll make you unmistakable for anyone else. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and sharing your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work and everything else that you're up to? Um, you can follow me on Instagram. That's where I post most content at more Janda on Instagram. Uh, but also my website, michaeljanda.com, uh, is, as a, as a links to all of my things. I do the biz buds podcast every week with Tom Ross uh, we love that show and and have a great audience there. Uh, so those are just a handful of places. Written a bunch of books and uh, have some courses and things. So check me out on michaeljanda.com and you'll find links to all my all my stuff. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. 
the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.